Hello, everybody, and welcome to Investing with IBD podcast, sponsored by Direction. It's Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022, and I'm your host, Justin Nielsen, and I just want to kind of remind you one more time, uh, before we get started on this podcast, I wanted to kind of tell you about a survey that we'd like your help with. Um, if, if we could have our listeners just go to this survey, it's at investors.com slash survey. We want to kind of find out what it is that you want out of this podcast, what investing lessons, what things you'd like us to cover. We want to customize this for you, uh, make it better. So if you could go to that investors.com slash survey, it would really help us out, customize this for you and um, make it the best it can be. So uh, we really appreciate your help on that. So let's go ahead and get right into it. Um, Arusha Paris, O'Neill Global Advisors Portfolio Manager is with us once again, as he is every week. Welcome, Arusha. Thanks for being here. Always great to be here, Justin. Thanks for having me. You got it. And as uh, our special guest, we have Pedro Palandrani coming back to the show. He is the Director of Research, so he's got a brand new title now at Global X ETFs. Pedro, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. So last time we were on the show with Pedro, um, we were we were talking all about the infrastructure bill that was going on, the Build Back Better that was in process. So we'll certainly get an update from him on that. Um, but there's also this Ukraine situation. What is it doing for some of the uh, climate control and you know all of these different themes that uh, Global X has so many thematic ETFs. So we'll dive a little bit deeper into some of those themes that are looking interesting to Pedro. Of course, we'll also cover what's going on in the markets and some individual stocks and ETFs. So that's what you have to look forward to. But let's go ahead and start out with the market. Um, in today's action, I mean, it was one of those big, uh, big dramatic days, right? You know, up 2% uh, or, or, or very close on the S&P 500. But I mean, that just seems like it's the norm right now, right? With the volatility we've had. Um, so, and really in a lot of ways, we were just kind of regaining the ground lost from yesterday. So what's what's your take, Arusha, on where we're at in the market? Yeah, well, we, uh, we're, we're almost, uh, we have to wait for the volume to come in. But we theoretically could get a fall today if the volume is higher than the previous day. Now, it looks like the volume is tracking lower. And so you might just barely miss uh, having a falter day. And a falter day, all it is is a, it's a market signal just letting us know that the market might have a chance to go on a rally here. Uh, and so that's what I was watching pretty closely to see if we were going to get uh, get over that threshold, both on the price and volume. And so we'll have to wait a little bit longer until we get the the official numbers in. But uh, mm -hmm. that that's that's kind of the key thing. But Justin, you mentioned the volatility. Now, when you are in harder markets, more volatile markets, you could get some fall through days that uh, fail, right? You'll get a, a few more false signals. We already had one fall through day a month and a half ago where that failed. And so we'll have to see here. You don't ever want to assume that it's going to fail. You always have to take them very seriously because no bull market has ever started without one. Yeah, so that first uh, follow-through day that you mentioned, that was January 31st. Uh, again, we had come come down with a dramatic reversal on January 24th, uh, and then we kind of rallied up from there, had our follow-through day. But, you know, there were a few things that were working, particularly energy, uh, some of the fertilizers, uh, some of the metals, things like that. But it, it quickly rolled over, and we undercut that, and then had another dramatic reversal on February 24th. And now here we are in position to potentially have another follow-through day, but we've got that 21-day moving average line looming large, I feel like, right. uh, acting as potential resistance. So it's almost like, look, you could have the follow-through day, and we certainly have more setups this time. So that's that's certainly a positive. But until we get above that 21-day moving average line, I don't think there's going to be much reason to go um, – you know, full bore uh, in terms of increasing your investment percentage to, you know, 100% or on margin, uh, heaven forbid. Right. So, um, Pedro, I want to kind of get your thoughts. Um, broad market. Uh, what 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 is your kind of take on what's going on? Uh, we've had, you know, really uh, one of the more serious corrections that we've had in a while. I mean, certainly there was the COVID crash, but that uh, that was so quick and so violent um this is kind of more your run-of-the-mill correction um what's what's your take on the the general market sure yeah you know uh 
clearly we're like you guys said we're we're having a much higher volatility than we used to have just uh, you know early on in 2021 uh, and and that's definitely threatening uh high growth uh stocks right you know like you mentioned here at global x we have a, probably the most comprehensive suite of thematic etfs in the market with 34 uh, etfs uh, and certainly we've seen some volatility across multiple areas. These are, you know, themes that tend to have high multiples, uh, high valuations. And therefore, you know, as you are under an environment with rising interest rates, rising inflation, and of course, right now, the geopolitical tensions that we're seeing around the world, that's um, making investors to focus a lot more on earnings growth, on large cap, on profitability. And that's something that oftentimes is not... Uh, something that you see with, within thematic ETFs. However, uh, you know, I think it's important for investors to, to understand that thematic ETFs and thematic related stocks are not always, you know, uh, unprofitable or small cap oriented. Sometimes, you know, you actually have um, thematic strategies that tend to have higher allocations to sectors such as materials, for example. So if you look at things like lithium and battery technology, uh, most of the stocks within that ETF are within the material sector. So that's something that it's actually benefiting from rising inflation, right? Generally speaking, commodity prices are up. So we're seeing lithium prices up as well. And so lithium miners are benefiting. So I guess that, uh, you know, as a kind of a final thought here, it's important for investors uh, to not paint with a brush broad all thematic stocks because of, of that reason. You know, thematic strategies are often a, a offering opportunities outside of disruptive technology, as, as we might think that that's the case always. Well, now, and sometimes, I'll be honest, I use some of the thematic ETFs as kind of a gauge of where the strength is. I mean, you can kind of see it in, uh, in the same way that I'll use like maybe the sector ETFs, the spider sector ETFs, you know, it's kind of like, hey, this kind of just tells you um, where things are moving and then you can do that deeper dive in terms of um, you know one, some of the stocks that are leading that, uh, what, what what's your take there, Arusha? Um, yeah, well, I, really, my my question was also going to go more towards uh, Pedro. Like for, for Justin and I, obviously, we're going to be using more kind of the action to let us know when to lighten up in certain areas and and things like that. So certain themes are going to be definitely in favor versus others. But uh, Pedro, I'm I'm assuming that with these thematic ETFs, because you you guys are looking at five, 10 years out, that really kind of just a normal market cycle isn't necessarily going to play into kind of the thinking of the allocation within the ETFs, because it's, as you mentioned, it just kind of naturally, you'll, it'll naturally balance out where some sometimes commodities are in favor. And so the lithium batteries might be doing well, where some other higher valuation type of stocks are, are going to go through their corrections. Is that is that thinking correct? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when we think about thematic investing, generally speaking, it's about providing exposure to macro level trends that, to your point, Arusha, are going to play out over the next five to 10 years. So, you know, short term market dynamics, of course, are important and, of course, are going to impact some of the stocks within these areas. But at the end of the day, if we have a very high conviction in things like uh, cybersecurity or video games and esports or robotics and AI, uh, you know, these are actually good opportunities to, to, to take position on many of these areas. We actually, for uh, 2020 and 2021, when many of these strategies were doing very well, we had a lot of investors sitting on the sidelines and saying, well, valuations are very high. Uh, you know, stocks have gone up significantly, uh, so maybe we're going to wait for a market correction. And probably this is a good time to start thinking about, you know, uh, adding some allocations towards thematic strategies. Yeah, certainly one of the things that Bill O'Neill would often suggest is, uh, you know, certainly with your diversified mutual funds, um, you know, index funds type thing, you know, corrections are a great time to add to those positions. Now, with thematic, you know, I guess it's a little bit trickier. You know, if it's diversified, you can kind of expect that you're going to get that mean reversion. But sometimes with the thematic, you know, something can be out of favor for a lot longer and, and the bounce might take, uh, you know, the, the, the mean reversion might take longer. Um, it could have a significant more downside than maybe you're expecting. Um, so I guess that's the trick, you know, sometimes. Uh, do you do you have a, a, a loss cutting strategy? If you if you get in at what seems like a low uh, and it goes lower, you know, what what is it? 
what are you supposed to do, especially with some of these themes where, you know, is something out of favor temporarily or is something starting to turn into an old technology as opposed to the cutting edge stuff? What, what's your what's your thoughts on that, Pedro? Yeah, I, I think you're right. You know, um, ultimately, we, we agree in that. Uh, not every single company and not every single theme is, is, is potentially going to be a winner over the next five to 10 years. So, uh, you know, for investors, we usually recommend an allocation of somewhere around 10% of your equity exposure within a portfolio towards thematic strategies. Again, mm-hmm. you're going to have much higher volatility. Your beta is going to be a lot higher if your benchmark is something like the S&P 500 or the Acqui. So, uh, you know, that, that's something that we um, acknowledge. However, you know, if you're trying to capture alpha, if you're trying to beat your, your benchmark, oftentimes these thematic strategies uh, give you that opportunity, right? So things like fintech, for example, have 0% overlap with, with something like financial services. So it's a diversifier. And if you're trying to capture alpha with all the disruption that you're seeing in the financial services sector, so fintech could be a good opportunity to do that. So and that applies to every single sector of our economy. And well, speaking of fintech, now, what is going on with fintech? Because <laughs> it is getting clobbered. You you don't have not, not just small cap or newer ideas like an upstart or an affirm. You, you have some of the, the larger, more established players like a PayPal or Square. Why is a PayPal in, or Block, I guess now it's called, but why, why is a PayPal or Block getting hit by they're, they're like 60% off their highs. Is, is there a particular reason why they're, they're, they've been correcting that much? Well, again, to my initial point, we've seen general weakness on these high value stocks with, um, you know, very high multiples for many yeah. at some unsustainable levels. I don't think there is any structural weakness, you know, over the long term. I do think these are actually the, the companies that could be the winners in what we know as the DeFi world, you know, that decentralized finance uh, buzzword that it's coming up every single single day on the headlines. You know, these are the type of companies that are very well positioned. They don't uh, not only uh, offer, uh, you know, a buy and sell transactions or peer to peer transaction opportunities, but they also have verticals within uh cryptocurrencies, for example, or, a, you know, many other areas, of course, to your point, Block now with, with that name is definitely uh, making a huge inroads into, into the blockchain world and cryptocurrency space. So, again, these are really companies very well positioned uh, to capture that DeFi opportunity. Mm-hmm. And hey, to PayPal's credit, just so you know, I mean, the valuation is uh, no longer as, as lofty. I mean, it's, it's now 23 PE ratio, you know, it's just above the S&P 500. So, I mean, all you need is a 65% correction. And look, your valuation problems are all taken care of. Um, but one other thing I just want to address before we go ahead and end this segment is uh, kind of uh, some, is the environment changing? So Arusha, we were talking on IBD Live today about you brought up the bulls bears and yeah. how Here's that bulls bears, and you know a lot of people ask, well, gosh, the, the the red line is your bulls, and your your green line is your your bears. Why why is it flipped? Well, this is a contrarian indicator. So, uh, tell us a little bit about what your what your thinking is when we start getting to these extremes and a potential crossover here. Yeah, and actually, now this is, I think is like a day delayed. We actually crossed over today, so the bear percentage actually got became greater than the bulls. So you had a crossover much like this over here back in March of 2020. And what that's letting us know is that the pessimism has gotten high enough or the fear has gotten high enough where too many uh, too many uh, investors are leaning too far to one side. And this, this kind of crossover where the bears, there are more people actually more bearish than, than bulls uh, happens on this indicator, it's, it's pretty rare, maybe every few years or so. And usually when you get that crossover, it's near a short-term bottom. And there have been plenty of times where it is right near kind of the ultimate bottom. It's not on that day, it may happen in the next few weeks, but whenever I see this, I take it very, very seriously. I think I've only seen this crossover in the last 10 years, maybe five times. And, and it's always kind of right around there. Um, so it just, gives me an idea that maybe we're getting closer. That being said, I'm still using our follow through day indicator as when to start moving more into the market. 
Right. It's kind of letting you know that you're in the proper environment to be uh, to be ready. It's it's your warning signal, if you will. So, uh, well, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of these thematic ETFs and what Pedro is seeing uh, as the potential leaders of the next cycle. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. The Direction Hydrogen ETF offers exposure to the top 30 pure play hydrogen economy companies by largest market capitalization, leading the way towards net zero emissions by providing more accessible, efficient, sustainable solutions across five hydrogen related subthemes. With clean hydrogen based energy expected to grow five times in the next 30 years, companies building hydrogen related businesses to generate power, heating, transportation, and more will likely thrive. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to the Investing with IBD podcast, sponsored by Direction. It's Justin Nielsen here, your host, along with Arusha Paris, my weekly special guest. And the even more specialer guest is Pedro Palindrani. Uh, he's the director of research at Global X ETF. So, Pedro, uh, last time you were on the show, we were talking about the infrastructure bill. You know, that you know, $1.3 trillion had just gotten passed, and uh, we were looking at the Build Back Better. Um, so there was a lot of this infrastructure talk. Uh, let's let's just kind of revisit that. You know how how did that play out? Um, you know I know that there was some of the legislation legislation stalling. Um, how did that play out? Like like you thought, or are there adjustments that you had to make um, based on the reality? Yeah, well, you know, uh, clearly uh, we got that 1.2 trillion dollars passed in the House in November. Uh, 2021. Actually, in 2022, we're already starting to see some of that uh, budget being spent by some federal agencies. The the largest one that comes to mind uh, is from the Federal Highway Administration. Mm -hmm. uh, they're planning to invest $52 billion uh, in 2022. Uh, now, important for investors, you know, most programs funded by uh, the IIJA, you know, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, uh, are uh, long-term projects. Most of them are actually projects that are going to start happening in the mid-2020s. In fact, you know, we're estimating that around 51% of uh, that spending is going to happen by 2026 uh, and about 90% by 2031. So this is, again, a decade-long type of spending plan that we're going to see in the infrastructure of, of the United States. Now, just last night, we have um, a, you know, uh, Biden talking about infrastructure, uh, and he actually mentioned that infrastructure in the United States is ranked 13 in the world. Uh, right. So that's something that, uh, you know, it's clear that we need to improve. It's clear that we need to inv invest more money. He actually even said that, you know, we're done talking about infrastructure weeks. Uh, we're going to have an infrastructure decade. And this is really how we see this thing playing out in the future. It's not only about kind of the short term dynamics, it's about the long term. You know, 43% of the roads in the United States are in poor condition. 9% of the drinking water systems serve 80% of the U.S. population. And 70% of, you know, U.S. transmission lines are at least 25 years old. So we clearly need to invest in infrastructure. Short term, there are going to be uh, a, some inherent volatility just as it's happening across um, the equity markets. Commodity prices are going up, so that's negatively impacting some of these uh, construction opportunities. However, again, over the long term, uh, I think this is one of those trends that are uh, that, that are clear that uh, you know uh, we're going to have some some winners in, in the space. Yeah, yeah and just uh, taking a look at PAVE, maybe, uh, Arusha, maybe you can oh, put yeah, that up real yeah. quick. That's the Global X ETF infrastructure, U.S. infrastructure, um, P-A-V-E is the ticker symbol, uh, just so we can have a look at that for, for folks that are watching the video. Yeah, and you can see with PAVE, it's getting back above the 200-day, the getting through a little bit of resistance there. And so so maybe it, it, it's uh, setting up to, to move higher. Uh, so, so this is a good one to, to keep an eye on. But I mean, I, I pulled up uh, United Rentals, too, where th this is well poised if uh, all this money is going to go in there and really start even more construction because they're uh, using they're, they're renting out a lot of this equipment that's needed. And I, this has been struggling for a while, but but it's it, it, it looks like it's trying to get it's back above the 50 day moving average, trying to get back maybe over the 200 day in the, the next month or so. And I also noticed the relative strength line starting to get above its uh, little moving average right there, too. So. So, yeah. So, pay, pay, uh, 
Pedro might be right here where now it, the the markets might be starting to adapt to what uh, the President Biden was saying. And uh, so, Pedro, do you, uh, yeah, again, because this is a decade long thing, uh, sometimes what happens with the price, I feel like there's there's almost like that initial uh, initial hype, you know, when when all of the legislation was, you know, coming coming out and the prospects. Um, and, and so, yeah, now again there's still a lot of a lot of funding that's going to be coming out over the next few years um so is this kind of pressure and and again putting it in perspective pave is down you know i mean less than 10 percent at this point and the markets are down a lot more so uh pave has held up relatively well um but again how do you kind of uh, look at this when you get that initial hype that kind of uh drives the prices higher you know on the news and then, you know, you've got decades long in which this is going to be kind of playing out. Uh, how do you kind of reconcile that? Yeah, you know, it, it's it's interesting because for all of these policy driven themes, not only infrastructure, but, all, but also you have things like cannabis, for example, you get that hype cycle where, you know, the policy is coming. We know that a lot of capital is going to go into this, this space. Uh, but, you know, investors tend to have sometimes a myopic fixation in the short term. Uh, however, again, whenever we get these policy, policy shifts, uh, these are themes that are going to really, uh, you know, disrupt the landscape over the next five to 10 years. And this is, again, what's going to happen with, with infrastructure. However, you know, already we're seeing uh, capital going into, into the space. Uh, another project that, that comes to mind is uh, the improvement that we're seeing in the port of LA. You know, as of January of this year, uh, we had uh, over 100 cargo ships waiting to enter the port of Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, that's a record high number. We ne we've never seen something like that. The DOT actually awarded uh, around 250 million for expansion projects uh, of, of ports just last December. So already we're seeing that capital entering the space. Companies like Jacobs Engineering, for example, just got uh, awarded um, a, a, a contract to design uh, the, the, the expansion of the Denver International Airport, uh, that expansion project that it's, again, multi-million dollar uh, project. So a lot of the companies that you see in PAVE are, are starting to see this budget uh, entering into into the space. And again, something that we re really expect to play out over the next five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And for those that are wanting to look at Jacobs Engineering, the ticker symbol on that is J. And I also just want to mention real quick, thank you for correcting me, because I did say 1.3 trillion and it was 1.2, but what's 100 billion among friends, right? Uh, go ahead, Arusha. <laughs> well, I, I think we should talk a little bit about cybersecurity. Uh, now we, we know with uh, Russia, well, before Russia attacked Ukraine, they first had uh, they attacked in, in the in, in the internet on the web and try to knock out a number of their systems and and even even a third party like anonymous is attacking Russia with all these all these young programmers are anonymous programmers are kind of getting together and they're trying to destabilize and impede Russia uh, from doing what they're trying to do so. How is cybersecurity playing a role in this? And it, are you seeing more of a demand uh, over the next five to 10 years for these companies involved in cybersecurity? Yeah, you know, all of this situation is essentially bringing to the spotlight the, the rise in cyber attacks. Uh, and especially, you know, Russia, uh, apparently it could be some retaliation from the sanctions that we're seeing from the Western world. And that mm -hmm. could spark a wave of cyber attacks uh, on the West, on Western institutions. Just over the last few hours, we've seen many articles around uh, a, or, or citing that banks are a major target from uh, Russian cyber attacks. So there's going to be a lot of investing in, in cybersecurity solutions. You know, for, for, for the average person, uh, the risk of a cyber attack is, is very low. Of course, there are a lot of phishing attempts and all of that, but that's not the case for the federal government, government right? Uh, and, and we've seen like the current administration continues to focus significantly on uh, protecting organizations and institutions within these critical areas within our economy, right? So financial services, utilities, energy, food, all of these are critical part of our supply chains. Just in 2021, if you guys recall, uh, recall we had the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack 
We had the CNA financial uh, ransomware attack where uh, that financial institution paid a, around $40 million uh, to, to decrypt parts of their digital infrastructure. We also get, uh, got the uh, JBS uh, cyber attack. That's the largest meat producer in the world. So a lot of cyber attacks happening in critical parts of our supply of our supply chain. So clearly, this is commanding greater investing in cybersecurity solutions. And that's why we're so bullish on cybersecurity um, in 2022. Mm -hmm. Now, Okay, you were saying earlier, though, um, that certainly a lot of these high, highly valued stocks, the high PEs, the richly valued, um, you know, heavy growth, were some of the stocks that were out of favor. But man, computer software uh, is, is full of those. Computer software security, even. Um, you look at Zscaler, CrowdStrike, Palo Alto, Fortinet. I mean, they almost all have triple digit uh, PEs, you know, well above the S&P 500. So, um, and, and, you know, as you mentioned, we already had kind of all of these cybersecurity concerns, even before the whole Russia-Ukraine thing, you know, this is just, I think, bringing it even more to the forefront. So given that you have, on the one hand, the out-of-favor, highly-valued stuff uh, that is in the cybersecurity, but also this big catalyst, really, uh, again, how do you reconcile those two things? Um, and, and maybe, uh, Arusha, for those that are watching the video, maybe you can put on the Global X ETF bug. Uh, which is the cybersecurity. Is that the best one to, to show here, Pedro? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's our cybersecurity ETF. It's actually one of the best performing funds that we have this year on, on our thematic suite. And maybe Arusha can, can comment on that. But you know, you're right, uh, Justin. Uh, it, you know, it's one of the high value uh, sectors or segments within our economy. A lot of cloud computing. Uh, related stocks, a lot of SaaS related cybersecurity companies. But number one, you have a lot of tailwinds coming from the government level that's spending a lot of money on cybersecurity. Corporations alone are expected to spend $172 billion in 2022. And even us as consumers, you know, we're also keeping an eye on cybersecurity solutions. Now, why we like it so much, fundamentally speaking, uh, is because the business model of cybersecurity stocks is very, very attractive. Again, most of them are software as a, ser uh, as a service platforms. And uh, what we are seeing is that the net dollar revenue retention rates in most cases for cybersecurity stocks is above 100%. So this metric basically is the, the beginning of uh, the period revenue for a cohort of clients plus any upgrades minus any downgrades, all of that divided by the beginning of the period revenue. And if that formula yields a number greater than 100%, then you're essentially saying that the growth from that cohort of clients or from that customer base more than offsets any losses from, from that same customer base. And that's what we're seeing in most cybersecurity stocks, uh, net, a net dollar revenue retention rate above 100%. So these companies are growing not only uh, from upselling new solutions to clients, but also onboarding the clients. So right. very, very attractive business model here. Yeah, I pulled up the the chart of bug on MarketSmith, and you can and really over the last week or so, you, you have a lot of volume coming in. It's gotten back above its 50-day and 200-day moving average, and so it has a real chance here to build the right-hand side of the base. And I also pulled up the holdings page right here, and so, Justin, these are the top four holdings in Bug Checkpoint Software, which is yeah, I've heard of them. Rocket, <laughs> it's been a rocket ship. In yeah, the, Jason the Thompson last. was just talking about uh, them on IBD Live last week. Uh -huh. Yep, yep. So, Checkpoint Software, Palo Alto Networks, uh, mm -hmm. Fortinet, and and uh, Norton LifeLock. So, all four companies uh, on a stock base are doing really, really well. Now, Checkpoint Software has over eight percent. Um, it's over 8% in, in, in this uh, ETF right here. So, Pedro, how, how does that, are, are you just letting kind of the market and the stocks that continue to do better and better, they just become a larger and larger percentage of the ETF? Uh, do they all kind of start equal? Or is there kind of a conscious decision to put a little bit more weighting towards a checkpoint versus something else? 
Yeah, great question, Arusha. So essentially, most of our thematic ETFs have a weighting scheme of uh, market cap uh, or a modified market cap. So essentially, we're allowing the winners in each of these themes to have a higher allocation within our portfolios and the losers to have a lower allocation. So if you think about that relative to another strategy that follows an equal weighted approach, uh, that strategy is going to end up selling the winners and buying the losers at each rebalance and reconstitution. So that's a very anti-momentum strategy in a very momentum driven strategy. So that's why we're so focused on that market cap winning scheme um, that essentially allows the winners to continue to have a higher allocation within the portfolio. Mm -hmm. But now you mentioned the modification. So go ahead and why don't you speak to that modification? Sure. So essentially, that speaks to the fact that sometimes we cap uh, right. the, 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 the initial weight of each security, say, to 6%, for example, or 5%. It really depends on the theme, uh, but we're capping that initial weight. And the, the reason why is that, you know, you tend to have things like e-commerce, for example, where if you were to just allow the companies uh, to have a weight on a free float basis, you would end up with Amazon being 50% of, of right. their portfolio. <laughs> we don't want that. We want diversification. We want to make sure that we're providing exposure to the universe of leading companies in each theme. So that's why we have that modified um, aspect to, to, the, to the market cap winning scheme. Yeah, very good. And so are there any companies uh, in particular? I mean, uh, Arusha just went through the top holdings, which again, were. I, IBD listeners should be very familiar with those names. Um, are there any uh, of these companies that particularly stand out to you as having a competitive advantage, especially with um, maybe the higher level, the government uh, government level? Sure. So uh, one of the companies that I like the most is Cscaler. Again, this is a 100% cloud computing um, a cybersecurity company. So again, everything is kind of software as a service uh, related. And one of the, the offerings or solutions that the company has is called CPA. CPA essentially uh, provides users with access to internal apps without the need to connect to, to the network of a company. So, you know, right now that we're working from home in, in many days of the week, we tend to connect to the company network through a VPN solution. So mm -hmm. the VPN uh, allows you for access to the overall network with a few privileges uh, privilege, uh, from time to time. However, zero trust uh, solutions like the CPA solution from Cscaler essentially eliminates the trust within the network. So no one uh, within the company uh, can have access to the overall network. So if you actually have a cyber attack, that prevents that cyber attacker to move horizontally through the network. So, you know, Arusha, if you get a cyber attack and that moves over kind of, uh, you know, the network and that impacts Justin with VPN solutions, that's not going to be the case with zero trust solutions. So essentially these type of solutions is going to, uh, uh, you know, reduce the use of v VPN um, uh, solutions over the next few years. And something, uh, one of the reasons why we like this company so much. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a game changer. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the thematic uh, ETFs that Pedro is doing his research on and some of the stocks that are driving them forward. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. The Direction Hydrogen ETF offers exposure to the top 30 pure play hydrogen economy companies by largest market capitalization, leading the way towards net zero emissions by providing more accessible, efficient, sustainable solutions across five hydrogen-related sub-themes. With clean hydrogen-based energy expected to grow five times in the next 30 years, companies building hydrogen-related businesses to generate power, heating, transportation, and more will likely thrive. Welcome back, everybody, to the Investing with IBD podcast sponsored by Direction. It's Justin Nielsen here, along with Arusha Pires and our special guest, Pedro Palandrani from Global X ETF. So um, before we move on to some other themes, uh, I want to just kind of real quickly uh, jump back to infrastructure. Uh, we, we, we talked about URI, United Rentals is one of the stocks, but uh, Deer is another one that Arusha wanted to mention. Um, so uh, Pedro, can you give us your, your thoughts on Deer, the ticker symbol DE? 
Sure. Uh, you know, very attractive company from from evaluation standpoint. Twenty one uh, times earnings, uh, as I see in my screen right now. Uh, this year, where a lot of investors are focusing on that quality growth side of things, this could, could potentially be a, a good company uh, from a technology standpoint, uh, leading in many ways uh, on the agricultural side of things. Just early this year uh, at CES, they introduced the uh, the first fully autonomous electric tractor, uh, and that's going to be for large-scale production in agricultural fields. Um, so that's going to be quite a, of a you know uh, disruptive technology for the agricultural world. Uh, actually, you know, if, if you look at some of the videos, you can see how uh, a, a, the tractor can be controlled through the smartphone. So it's very interesting technology and something mm -hmm. that we believe is going to help reduce emissions and operating costs for, for farmers as well to uh, as allow for improved yield. So ultimately, you know, AgTech is all about maximizing inputs in and in, in, in minimizing, uh, actually the other way around, uh, minimizing inputs and maximizing output. So that this is a company that within the AgTech and infrastructure ecosystem is going to be leading uh, for, for many years. Yeah, I, I pulled up the, the weekly chart of Deer and uh, had a, an amazing 2020 and spent most of 2021 going sideways. If you can get past that 400 level, it might have a chance here to, to start moving up again. So technically it's acting well, it's finding support in all the right areas it got through earnings. And uh, yeah, and, and as Pedro uh, highlighted, it has some leadership qualities from the fundamental side and some interesting growth catalysts. Yeah, you look at that weekly chart and then you're like, yeah. wait, that's deer? Yes, <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> That's not a tech stock. So, <laughs> um, so OK, so, uh, you know, kind of in a in a almost related way, um, we were talking a little bit uh, at the break about the whole video game idea. And um, of course, Metaverse was really on everyone's mind, you know, as as Facebook changed their name to Meta. And, you know, everyone was talking about that. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the infrastructure of the metaverse and what that's going to be doing to the video game industry sure uh, you know um i think for investors to to better capture the metaverse opportunity initially or within the early innings of uh, of the metaverse is going to be uh it's going to be through infrastructure related companies infrastructure i mean you know the companies that are building the augmented reality, the virtual reality, the mixed reality technology. Um, in, in a few years, we're actually going to even see haptic bodysuits, omnidirectional treadmills, brain sensing uh, wearables that you know can control uh, the immersive experiences that the metaverse requires. Because let's be realistic, for a metaverse to actually work, we need very immersive experiences and that can only be accomplished through you know, hardware-related technology. So once that infrastructure is, is in place, we're actually going to start focusing a lot more on the content side of things. So who are the, who are the platforms, who are the companies that are very well positioned to benefit on that content side of things that are going to offer you know, very uh, good experiences uh, for the users. But first, again, it's going to be on that infrastructure side for the metaverse. Kind of the hardware. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great point, Pedro. Now, I, I pulled up Roblox here because Roblox is one of those key players in the metaverse, and they almost have their own, they do have their own closed ecosystem. Um, what are your thoughts on a company like this, even though, you know, it is still a number of years out before that whole infrastructure gets, uh, you know, becomes a reality. Uh, what are your thoughts on a Roblox since it went public uh, in the last year? Yeah, uh, I think it's a really, really attractive company and, and potentially one of the company's best position within the content side of things for, for the metaverse. So, uh, you know, one in two kids here in the United States actually uh, play Roblox. They have over 40 million daily active users. That's a very large number. Uh, what I like about them is that they have this ecosystem in place of developers that are actually getting paid by developing these, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of experiences within Roblox, they also, of course, have uh, the users, and they even have this uh, economy within the the, the, the in-game experience with their own currency, the Robux. So, you know, this is a company that is really well positioned to benefit from from. Uh, 
the new idea of video games as a new social media outlet in our society. You know, this is a new way for people to collaborate, to play, to learn uh, with friends and family all around the world. So that's the new um, attractiveness of video games is that social aspect of things. In fact, if you look at every single successful video games over the last uh, few years, it has had that um, social aspect as kind of the main driver driver uh, of the of the of the success of the title. Mm-hmm. So we're we're kind of uh, you know waiting, I guess, uh, in terms of the content for the metaverse, uh, you know, until some of that hardware comes on, and it might be worth looking at the uh, Global X ETF uh, Hero H E R O. That is that's the video game one, right? That um, we're kind of talking about. So are there other I guess since the metaverse is maybe not quite ready yet, um, what what are you seeing now in terms of what's happening in video games? Uh, what's what's exciting there? Sure. So uh, you know, first of all, a lot of M and A activity. You probably saw Microsoft yes. acquiring Activision Blizzard for a, a massive cash cash only transaction. Take Two also going through some M and A activity. I actually think that. You know, uh, Amazon could potentially buy one of these large video game developers and publishers. You know, for Amazon has been in the space for about eight to nine years, the video game space, and they have had two video game launches. The two uh, the two launches failed completely. So I'm I'm really sure that you know they're going to be uh, trying to enter the space more seriously with a lot of capital, and that could potentially be through some some M and A activity. What I like right now is not only that social aspect of video games today, but also the improving business model of video games. 10, 15 years ago, uh, you know, for us to go buy a video game, we used to go to, you know, the nearest Walmart or GameStop to to buy the the video game hardware, right? The the CDs to to play that video game. That's not the case anymore. You know, over 85% of video games are distributed digitally. And that essentially means that uh, video game developers and publishers are leaving aside all the nightmares associated with supply chain. So they don't need to manufacture those CDs anymore. They can just deliver the video games to the end consumers via digital distribution. So that's really uh, making these companies improve uh, their gross margin profile. So that's just one of the things that we really like today from video game companies. And Hero here has been kind of in a downtrend. Again, is this is this more because of the the richly valued companies, or um, is there is there a catalyst that you think can kind of turn things around here for the bulk of these games, uh, these gaming stocks? So I think we've seen a little bit of weakness associated with the the fact that you know people are starting to go out. You know, 2021, 2020 yeah. were periods where we were at home, nothing to do outside in the world. So right now that's changing. So engagement in video games are declining slightly. However, like I mentioned before, the fact that these are the new social media ch- channels in our society offers a good uh, long-term opportunity for video games improving business models, new forms of revenue. You know, again, uh, right now, video game companies do not only monetize from buying up from the video game, but they actually uh, continue to monetize uh, their user base by introducing, you know, uh, new downloadable content like new maps or new weapons or things like that, but also microtransactions. So if you want to wear some sort of, uh, you know, you know, Nikes or Adidas shoes, you can actually do that right now in the video gaming. And that continues to improve the monetization uh, for video game platforms. What about mobile gaming? Um, I I was pretty surprised to see how large the revenue from mobile gaming was versus console gaming. Yeah, we're talking, again, generally speaking, the video game industry is probably about $180 billion uh, in annual revenues. uh, almost half of that is from mobile gaming. And that's mm. essentially because there is a, a low barrier to entry to uh, mobile gaming, right? Everyone around the world almost has a smartphone on their hands right now. So that's a very large market, very large opportunity. You can think from video games like Candy Crush, uh, uh, from from uh, Activision Blizzard, and uh, other kind of uh, newer video games that you can also play uh, on the mobile setting. But just the fact that it's such a low barrier to entry uh, is making that sector to be uh, such a high share of total revenue generated in video games. 
Mm -hmm. So let's go ahead and shift gears a little bit to round out the conversation. Um, you know, certainly one of the things that we've been seeing really dominate this year is, is energy. Um, of course, oil and gas uh, predominantly, um, you know, we, we, we talked a little bit about materials and uh, all of these inputs that have been costing more, um, you know, mining and stuff. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, what with the situation in Ukraine and um, what's going on in Europe and their dependence on Russia for a lot of this stuff, uh, they, they've, for a long time, Europe has been looking elsewhere for the renewable energy, the clean tech, climate change, um, you know, trying to get that solar, that wind. Uh, now they have more of, I guess, a motivation to do so just to get off that Russian, um, you know, Russian oil and gas. So talk a little bit about what you're seeing in, in the climate change space and what companies might be worth looking into right now. Sure. Uh, you, you know, actually, over the last week or so, many of the companies within the solar and wind uh, renewable energy production are up over 20%. So companies like SunPower, Sunron, Enphase, Orsted in Europe, Nordex, all of these companies uh, have surged in price basically because, you know, like you say, the world is now uh, increasing uh, the demand for renewable energy and try to decrease the reliance on oil and gas. And, you know, Russia is such a big player in, in that camp. And we know that uh, there's likely a prolonged geopolitical tension there with Ukraine. So investors are, you know, recognizing the opportunity within the renewable energy space. Uh, this is not only going to be driven by, by this situation. Again, this is one of those uh, short-term shocks to the economy that happen right. to favor climate change-related stocks. But over, over the long term, we know we're going there. We need to get to net zero emissions. We need to get to solve a lot of the climate change concerns that we have in the world. And climate change-related stocks are, are, are going to benefit from that. Mm -hmm. Arusha, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was, I was trying. Well, should, should I pull, pull up Ray's? Raise, raise uh, which, which one? SeaTac, Raise, which, which which one would be the best one to kind of start with? Yeah, Raise is our solar ETF. We also have uh, Windy, uh, WNDY, our wind ETF, uh, okay. or RNRG, that's our uh, renewable energy ETF uh, that, you know, encompasses uh, a, a variety of uh, multiple renewable producers from the solar, wind, and a few other areas of, of, of energy production. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you mentioned a number of the solar, uh, the solar companies, um, it, you know, and I think a lot of people are familiar with those because they had such a run before. Um, what are some of the companies and some of these other like the, the wind um, or, you know, the, the, the renewable energy? Uh, what are some of the companies that are interesting to you in those spaces? Well, uh, Sunron is, is an interesting company. Like I mentioned, um, it, it was up significantly over the last few weeks. Today, I think they're having a a negative day down 5%, probably showing some, some correction after that nice run. But what we like about it is that they're the number one residential solar provider here in the United States. So it's one of the companies that as you continue to see greater adoption from a, you know the average consumer, they're going to continue to benefit. So uh, you know consumer behavior is changing favorably towards renewable energy production. production. And this is one type of company that could benefit from that residential side of things uh, uh, from, from solar energy. What about, uh, so, so when, when a lot of people are pull, putting up kind of the solar panels and things like that, capturing that energy, are there, are there a number of companies coming out with kind of the, the batteries that, because I, I know like a Tesla has their like battery that you can put, put on the wall. Are there other companies coming out like that to uh, compete in that space? Kind of the storage? Yeah, the, exactly. Mm -hmm. So yeah, to your point, uh, there are times of the during the year or during the days where the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining. So yeah. energy storage is definitely key to uh, support that transition towards renewable energy. Companies that come to mind are the leading battery technology companies. So you have LG Chem, you have Panasonic, you have CATL in China. All of these companies are growing primarily uh, for the work that they're doing on the EV space uh, because they're working with most of the leading 
EV companies around the world. However, uh, kind of the secondary business vertical tends to be that energy storage solution. So again, Panasonic, LG Chem, CATL, all of these companies are well positioned to, to capture that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And speaking of uh, Tesla, well, I, I do own shares of Tesla, but how, how is Tesla competing like in in kind of the solar space? Because they they acquired uh, I can't remember the the name of the solar company, what, Solar number, City. Solar City, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they acquired that, and they they do have some plans to kind of put the the solar panels on the the roofs and stuff like that. Are you seeing there's any a Tesla kind of roof uh, just just down the street from me? Is uh, there? <laughs> yeah, it looks sharp. <laughs> they look cool, yeah. Yeah, they're going to, uh, you know, it, I, I wouldn't call that. I wouldn't call that it's going to be a major driver of the Tesla stock over the next right. few years. Uh, I would say that, uh, well, Elon Musk has said that that side of the business, the solar side, it's going to be uh, larger. However, when I look at Tesla and when I look at the future of the company and what are going to be the, the drivers. I think more of the AI side of things uh, around autonomous vehicles and all the data that they're capturing yeah. uh, with their cars and the cameras that they have on the, on the Tesla vehicle. So, you know, again, if I were to focus on Tesla, I would be looking much more at, at that autonomous vehicle side of things, which, by the way, you know, they publish a quarterly safety report. If you look at that, uh, you know, Tesla's uh, vehicles that implement full self-driving technology are 10 times better driver than humans, which is uh, a mesmerizing fact uh, mm. that we just came across. And uh, it's something that it's been sustained uh, over the last few quarters. So again, 10 times better drivers than the average human, uh, just measured by the number of crashes that you see on those vehicles. Mm. Very interesting. Well, any any final thoughts, Pedro, before we wrap this up? I mean, you, you talked a lot about a lot of different themes. Um, any kind of overarching uh, advice for investors right now? Well, you know, the world is facing uh, tremendous disruption uh, across every single sector of our economy. And I think we as investors, we should position our portfolios and, uh, to capture those opportunities or essentially to future proof our, our portfolios. And, you know, thematic investing really offers that type of opportunities. Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate you coming back on the show, Pedro. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you on again soon. Thank you. Okay, that'll do it for this show. And on the show next week, we're going to have Anne-Marie Bain. She's been on IBD Live, a great discussion that we've had with her on options. She's the author of The Trading Book. Uh, Very knowledgeable, always great to talk to her. So we're excited to have her on the podcast next week. So make sure you tune in for that. Thanks for watching. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.